Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is a bonus episode of the Florida Matters podcast. I'm Matthew Petty. Athenia Joyner was first elected to the Florida legislature in 2000, taking office amid the legal turmoil of the presidential election between George Bush and Al Gore. Her 16-year career as a state lawmaker included two years as a Senate minority leader, and she was the first black woman elected to that post. We sat down to talk with Joyner about her trailblazing career and an upbringing that helped shape her commitment to equality and justice. Senator Joyner, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Now, you were the first black woman to serve as a Senate Minority Leader in the Florida Legislature and the first black Hillsborough County Aviation Authority member appointed by a governor. That was back in 1991. Those are just a couple of the barriers that you broke in your career. I want to go back to your childhood, though, if we could. You were born in Lakeland in 1943 and later moved to Tampa. What was it like growing up in the Tampa Bay region at that time? Well... My most profound memory as a child was prior to my family moving here from Lakeland. I think I was five, and my dad came home one day and said, uh, he rushed in and said, pull the shades down and lock the door. The Klan's marching. And, of course, we did, not really knowing what the Klan was, but we did peep out the window, and I saw these men with uh, robes and hoods on. And I asked my father, what was that about? Why is it that we have to lock down, in essence, whatever a kid would say at five? And he said that those are white men who don't like black people, don't feel like they're equal to them. And so they constantly frighten you by showing up and marching and burning crosses in your yard. But don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. And then subsequent to that, we moved to Tampa. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a wonderful childhood. My father owned the original Cotton Club on Central Avenue. Central Avenue was the mecca of black business in this town. It was uh, from Cass to Henderson maybe about eight blocks, and every business within those streets were black businesses. So, you know, you had an opportunity to see professionals and non-professionals, doctors, lawyers, dentists, photographers, bail bondsmen, cab stand, movie theater, restaurants, just the gamut of businesses were located in that eight-block radius. But the thing about it is some were run by black people, owned by someone else. But my father owned his building. And so it was wonderful. This was a time when black police officers could not arrest anybody but black people within the confines of black neighborhoods. But white officers also walked the beat. Mm -hmm. But everybody was cordial. It was segregated. And in that, on Central was all black folks, except for 
the people like the liquor distributor, Gene, and um, his wife, Helen Gordon Davis, mm -hmm. who was the first white woman in Hillsborough County to join the NAACP, and she subsequently became a state senator. But I met her as a child, so we developed a relationship, which was good because I had an opportunity to see that she wasn't like the men who wore the uh, mask and the hoods and the robes. And so um, I, I knew that of all these people there, I could be anything I wanted to be. There was Francisco Rodriguez, the lawyer, Dr. Lewis, the dentist, Dr. Archie, the Florida Sentinel Bulletin, the, first, the second black newspaper in Tampa. And I was the first teenage social editor of the newspaper. So how come you decided to go into law and not journalism? <laughs> Interesting that you would ask that question because Mr. Andrews Jr. wanted me to go into law. And my dad had said, no. I don't want you to starve. Newspaper reporters don't really get paid commensurate with their education. But I knew when I was in fifth grade that I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I was in fifth grade, and my teacher was Doris Ross Reddick. And Ms. Reddick was the first black woman elected to the Hillsborough County School Board. Well, during that time, she was a fifth grade teacher. And Brown v. Boyd opinion came down when I was in fifth grade, and there was some discussion about it. And that's when I decided, heck, I want to be like Thurgood Marshall. I want to be a lawyer so I can fight for equality for black people specifically and all others who may be marginalized. Mm -hmm. And so I knew from fifth grade what I wanted to be. And, of course, there were forces like writing for the paper, and then I was the teenage social editor for WTMP, so I was on the radio every Saturday morning. So, you know, I had lots of opportunities. I was exposed to the possibility of other professions, but I wanted to be a lawyer, and that's what I never wavered from what I wanted to be, even though others tried to influence me to change my mind. When you reflect back to that <coughs> first memory you talked about seeing the Klan marching, I mean, if you'd known what they were, I imagine it could have been quite terrifying, but it sounds like you weren't really sure what you were seeing. Well, I was five years old, and it was my first experience. And so, you know, I had to ask my dad. I mean, we had vaguely heard about the Klan, but, you know, with kids, you kind of shelter them and all. And this didn't happen every day in town, you know. And so it was just that first exposure, which... It's indelibly imprinted in my psyche, and I'm sure that had some influence later after Thurgood Marshall successfully argued before the Supreme Court about segregated schools and how that was unconstitutional. So I had that in my head, and also from first grade on, I saw how we were treated, where we couldn't go, the colored water fountains the colored restrooms, all those things that we live through in a segregated society. Now, thinking to your high school days as a high school student in the 1960s, you were able to witness and, and take part in the civil rights movement firsthand as black Floridians fought for equality. Tell us about your role in the Woolworth lunch counter oh. sit-ins in Tampa. 
Well, this was February 1960, and I was in 11th grade, and George Edgecombe, who was the first black judge in Hillsborough County, and first black assistant county solicitor, which later became the state attorney. And so George, as president of the student council, was contacted uh, by the NAACP Youth Council president, Clarence Ford, and said, we're going to go down and demonstrate. This was late February. The first demonstrations had occurred in North Carolina on February 1st of 1960. So George said, I've got to get 20 students. And George came to me and he said, he asked me if I wanted to participate. And I said, of course. And um, he said, well, you're the last one because I was known for being very loquacious. And he said, if we had asked you first, the whole world would have known it before we even got to March. And uh, I said yes, because I had had, we'd all had experience in being marginalized and mistreated. So here was an opportunity for me to speak up now by participating. But every parent did not necessarily want their kids to participate. My dad was reluctant. He was 20 years older than my mom. So, you know, having experienced prejudice and racism as he had, because he was born in 1901, so he was literally fearing that there would be some harm to come to us. But my mom said, we're here for you. And so I became a member of the group of the 20 Middleton students who participated in we went to St. Paul AME Church and Reverend A. Leon Lowry, and who was the NAACP president, and then there was Clarence Ford, the president of the Youth Council, and, you know, they explained what we were going to do and that this was a nonviolent event, that we would stay focused and understand that we had people there who cared about us and that if we wanted to, back out we could, but it was a an individual decision and and I, and I and I was all in for it. Mm-hmm. When you think back to what it was like taking part of that, were you scared? I mean, were you worried there could be some violence towards you and your fellow demonstrators? Well, you know, the thought was there that perhaps however, we didn't know how people would react, but law enforcement was there. There were people there, and when you're young and idealistic and you feel that your rights have been trampled on, you do what you think is in the best interest of you and your people, and you put aside your fears, and you move on and participate and say whatever happens, happens. It's That thing about being young makes a big difference when you are fighting for equality. Mm-hmm. Was it exhilarating, though, knowing that you were taking some action to try and right some wrongs? Yes, it really was because I lived it through. Here I was in 11th grade, and and um, there had been instances where I, I remember I was in the car once with my dad, and he was driving, and he stopped, but he went over that white line 
where you're supposed to stop to allow pedestrians, but you know how people pull all the way up and then they're going to make a right turn once they stop. And a police officer came along and got in front of the car and said, boy, back that car back up. And, oh, my God, I was furious. And, and so those little things that happened that were a big deal to me, where he was being totally disrespected, just was slightly devastating that here he's being talked to and called a boy. And that wasn't the only instance when when I was privy to uh, some of the insults hurled at him and at us. But, you know, you you have to decide what is it you, you're going to do in life. And having decided as a young woman, as a little girl, that I wanted to be a lawyer, I was steadily propelled and motivated by what I wanted to do and, and how I could best have my voice heard in this fight. When you think about where we are in the continuum of civil rights in this country right now, what surprises you about the discourse around civil rights? Well, you know, it occurred and and you looked forward, you know, you saw progress being made. And I'll tell you, we have had a lot of progress. But there are arenas that have opened up that you never envisioned. It's like in 2000, when I went in the legislature, a bill came up about vouchers for uh, kids who wanted to go to private schools Mm -hmm. and not go to public schools. So as an activist, young Democrat, black female lawyer in the Florida legislature, I saw this as an attempt to destroy public school education. So I had my aide and I put together um, an artifact to take to the Florida House. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a cardboard sheet with grass and on top of the grass we put a coffin and in the coffin we put a school and I got up and debated and I said this is the beginning this will be the death of public schools and here we are 2024 and oh my god the voucher thing has just erupted into it now you can be a millionaire and get eight thousand dollars a year for your kid to go to a private school so you know Initially, it started out with people who couldn't afford it, blah, blah, blah. Now it has exploded. So that's one of the changes that I've seen that's been devastating. And I think it's a a master plan, in my opinion, to eradicate public schools. And consequently, who is going to be most affected by it? I want to ask about your kind of entry into politics. Was there a single event or or person that really motivated you to, to get involved in politics? Well... Yes and no. In 1972, I met Shirley Chisholm. I met her in 71, I believe it was, and then in 72 when she decided. And Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman elected to the United States Congress and the first black to run from a major party for president of the United States. Mm -hmm. So she called and asked me if I would organize a group of women and would I lead them and be her local campaign manager. And just for our listeners, too, she was a a New Yorker. Yes, she was from Brooklyn, New York. And and first elected in 1968. Yes, first elected in 68. But so here it was, 72, and she's running for president. Mm -hmm. And so she asked me to organize a group of women and and be a local campaign person. And and I was, and I I enjoyed it. And then after Shirley, you know, I met Jesse Jackson around the same time in in the late 60s. And then 
when Jesse announced for president, he gave me a call and asked me to be his local campaign manager. And I said, no, I got to practice law. And he said, yes, but you got a responsibility to get involved. And so I did. So I ran his campaign in 84. He lost in 88. He ran again. And in order to have a delegate to the Democratic Convention, you had to have 15% of the vote. Jackson campaign got 15% of the vote. And I was the Jackson delegate to the convention Mm -hmm. in 1988. And there I met Joe Biden and developed a relationship with him. And then in the National Bar Association, I met Governor Bill Clinton. And a couple of years later, Sandy Friedman invited him to Tampa. She was the first elected official in Florida to endorse him. Mm -hmm. And he came and met with a group of us. And ironically, in the group, I was the one person he knew from the National Bar when he had been our banquet speaker. And he spoke. And then the next day, I get a call and say, will you? I said, oh, my God. And I did, along with a young man. And we ran the campaign and went through all that occurred during that campaign. Mm -hmm. This is the Clinton campaign. Yes, the Bill Clinton campaign. So I'd been with Shirley and Jesse and Bill and in between Lawton Childs' campaign was right before for governor, Mm -hmm. and Lawton was a lawyer from Lakeland. And so we had that tie. He was a United States senator before he ran for governor. Mm -hmm. His nickname was Walkin' Lawton, right? Walkin' Lawton, yes, because they had said he wasn't going to win, and he put on those boots and walked from one end of the state of Florida to the next, and he won the election. But he and Buddy McKay, a lawyer from Ocala, whom I knew from campaigns. Mm -hmm. I met him when I was working with Pat Frank when she was running for the United States Senate. And so, you know, I got a lot of exposure in politics with all of these people. So fast forward to 1999, and I get invited to a party at Alex Sank and Bill McBride's house, and there's a lady there, Lois Frankel. Congresswoman Lois Franco, now from Palm Beach County, was the Democratic leader who asked me to run. And she told Bill McBride, Bill Nelson, and Bob Buckhorn that she was looking for a candidate for the Florida House of Representatives. And they said, there she is. And they pointed at me. And we went in a room and talked, and I told her I would get back with her after I consulted my family first and my close friends. You know, I'm a worker. I just wanted to Produce winners. I, mm-hmm. I wanted to work in campaigns where people won, and I had been successful, and I loved it. But you, it, you never saw yourself as that person. No, I just wanted to. I just wanted to work in campaigns. There's something exciting about being out there on the ground, knocking on doors, holding up placards. I did everything. I licked stamps. I knocked on doors. I made speeches. But this was over a period of years, and I loved it. It was exciting to me. So she asked me, and I, I said, I think about it. And then I said, yes, and the rest is history. I, I ran, she asked, in December of 1999, and I won in November 2000. And we all know about the tumultuous 2000 election. Mm-hmm. That was the Bush v. Gore. And so you go to Tallahassee, and they're nothing but media all over all you could see oh my god wires everywhere you had to step over every media in the world was in Tallahassee because the Bush v. Gore vote count was still going on and 
But that was my beginning, and I enjoyed being in the legislature and that year, even though we were in the minority. But the good thing was, contrary to today, we had an, one more than enough to keep the majority party from being a super majority. Mm-hmm. So we have 43. And so, you know, when we got up there, the woman was well-organized. Lois Franco was fantastic. She didn't serve on any committees. All she did was strategize on what we would do. So we got in a situation where she decided, because the rules allowed it, that you could force the opposition to read every bill, and she did. And there we were at 3 o'clock in the morning in chambers, and one of the uh, Republicans, whom I got to be got to be friends, he got up and said, well, let's just close it down then. Let's close the chambers down. Okay, a representative, that means that we will all be locked up in here, including you, you know. <laughs> and they, in fact, locked the doors and nobody could leave. So, you know, we had access to what we needed. We had snacks and stuff, and the, and the facilities were available. But that was... They had never had anybody to do that. Mm-hmm. So that was so exciting to be there and to see everybody all been out of shape because the Democrats had just slowed it all down and to read a 300-page bill. Well, now they got a machine that does it, and it just runs through it real fast. But they had to use humans to read it then, and that was just so exciting that night, even though it was 3 o'clock in the morning. When you think about how things are now. I mean, your time in state politics wrapped up at the end of the Obama administration. This was in 2016. And, you know, the, the legislature, as you point out, has, has changed a lot since then. Uh, you know, now Republicans hold a supermajority. The last couple of years in particular focused on culture war issues like the teaching of black history. Why do you think that has happened? And, and what do you think you would do if you were still in the Florida legislature? Well, first, I want to point out that this is not the first time that there was a supermajority. Mm-hmm. When Senator Nan Rich was Democratic leader, there were only 12 Democrats in the Florida Senate out of 40. But the big difference between then and now is there were moderate Republicans, Republicans who stood up and did not follow the leader at the Pied Pipers, we would say. Because mm-hmm. when Johnny Byrd was the speaker, former speaker Johnny Byrd in the House when I was there, whatever the speaker said, they did. It just appeared to me that they didn't have the moxie or the guts to stand up and oppose things that they knew were wrong. But the Senate was a different chamber. And every night when I was in the House, I'd say, thank God for the Senate. Then when I got to the Senate, I was able to work with these people who saw things differently and who would not let any one person control them. Now they don't have that. It's basically you do whatever you're told to do. That's what happens because when you have friends there and people develop relationships and they say, well, I really don't want to do this, but I don't have any choice because then their money gets cut out of the budget, they get kicked off committees. I mean, is that a different way of doing politics from when you were in the legislature? Well, now they have the mindset of those who are there is different because Mm -hmm. the eight are Republicans who voted with the 12 Democrats. And we killed prison privatization, 
abortion bill and another bill called Parent Trigger, where if any 51% of any parent group at a school could vote, they could automatically make it a, a, a charter school. Mm-hmm. We kill those three bills with 12 Dems and the rest Republicans because these were independent thinkers. And that wouldn't happen today? No, no. And and those, they didn't care about what the president of the Senate wanted because they said we control our destiny. We, we think for ourselves. That does not happen now. And so now this, all the culture wars and, and the governor's fixation on eviscerating, eliminating black history is just the most disgusting thing that I have ever thought would occur in Florida politics. How can I talk about, well, the Civil War without mentioning slavery? You know, how, how can we separate what really happened from keeping people from being uncomfortable when, in fact, that's the allegation is that they become uncomfortable when you relate to them or teach them what happened in the past. But these are facts. We can't change them. I got friends and associates that I discussed these issues with and what I went through and as a young black woman lawyer, the first one in town and trying to see a client and each time being when they got to the jail, well, you know, you have to show who you are, but I thought it was a bit unnecessary, and so mm-hmm. I finally called the sheriff and said, tell them that there is one black woman lawyer in Tampa, and don't give her a hard time when she comes. But, you know, where we are now in the mindset of some of the leadership in this country is appalling, because you can't take away the right of people to be able to read books that they want to read, or the right of people to know what happened in America, what started it, why did we even come, how black people got to this country. I mean, it's it's absurd. It is it is devastating to say the least. But it's not gonna stop anything. We're gonna teach our kids. I mean, every book I buy is something about black history. Every time I get an opportunity, they can't punish me for speaking the truth. When you think about you know, the state of the world now, politics in Florida, some of these issues you've been talking about, what gives you hope when you think about the future? Well, I've encountered a lot of young people who now are beginning to see and understand that they have a responsibility to get out there and to help make change occur. I think when when George Floyd's death occurred, we saw a galvanizing of people from all walks of life and I, I and I would say that's not lost now. It created some relationships that will help us move this country toward being what the American dream is all about. And I just have confidence that I know that we are not going to back down. See, that's the major thing. Black people are not going to back down. I'm not going back. I would die first. And there are young ones who are saying they now have some real understanding of what those of us from the 60s encountered. You know, and so it's taken on a different form, but they're standing up and speaking out and organizing. And social media has, has you know, has done a big job of getting the word out and galvanizing people to come and fight for their right to equality in this country. And I just think that 
It's not going to stop because we're not going to sit back from the young ones to those of us who are still here who fought then. And and we've got to because my generation are octogenarians now. And consequently, in a few years, we'll all be gone. But But you can never stop fighting. You can never, ever forget who you are and where you came from and how you got to where you are. Because we are no better than the least of these, you know. And as long as we understand that and know that we all have a responsibility to give back, regardless as to whether we were affluent or whether we were in poverty, we are all God's children, all equal in his eyesight, and hopefully one day in the eyesight of all of Americans. Athenia, Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Find more political coverage on our website, WUSF.org. And throughout 2024, Florida Matters will be bringing you analysis of what the presidential election and other races mean for voters in the greater Tampa Bay region. Listen Tuesday nights at 6.30 on WUSF 89.7 FM or right here on the Florida Matters podcast. Thank you.